0: Right, well, it's half past, so I think we should begin. As the University's Senior Vice Principal, I'm delighted to uh, welcome everybody to the first of these three um, festival talks uh, uh, linked to our Enlightenment uh, theme. We have in the University at the moment a a general Enlightenment theme which is informing uh, both our fundraising uh, and our engagement with um, the wider world. And there are a series of... um, high-profile lectures being uh, supported very generously by Scottish Power uh, taking place this year uh, and next year. The first one uh, was held in February when uh, the Environment Lecture, we had 1,300 people come into the um, university um, to uh, welcome um, our our first speaker in the series. And uh, can I draw your attention to the fact that um, uh, Joe Stiglitz of Columbia University, Nobel laureate, economic advisor to President Clinton, former chief economist at the World Bank, um, is scheduled to give the next lecture uh, in this series. It's a ticketed event um, uh, and um, it will take place on Monday the 28th of August at 6.30pm in the McEwen Hall. That's part of, as it were, our theme for enlightenment in the modern World, but um, as an accompaniment to this, um, we decided it would be fun to set up a series of talks and seminars and um, discussions uh, linking to the earlier in- Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, uh, which predominated, was so significant in this city. And, and during the festival, we thought it would be particularly fun um, to have three uh, uh, talks on various aspects of uh, 18th century culture. And today we have the the first of these, um, Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. um, He's a lecturer in classics in the School of History and Classics, and he's an expert on dress in the ancient world, and uh, also on how it is represented in modern drama. And today he's going to talk about Handel in the the Orient, the image of Persia uh, in the environment. So, Lloyd... Over to you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure and a great honour to be here. Um, especially since I hold up my hand and say I know very little about the Enlightenment per se, but I do know quite a lot about the ancient world. Um, I'm a classicist uh, by trade, but even as a classicist, I'm kind of out on a limb, uh, because my main interest is uh, ancient Iran, ancient Persia. So, in other words, I'm looking at the classical world from the eyes of the avowed enemy of the Greeks. Um, And I also have another love, and that is Baroque opera. So it was a great joy uh, a few a year ago, in fact, to be asked um, to uh, put on a different cap, uh, one I used to wear in a, a former life before I entered academia, and to direct a production of Handel's opera Xerxes. So this lecture is something of a tie-in. Um, I'll make no bones about it. There is a fantastic programme of events going on, uh, organised by a, a youthful and very energetic music group called Edinburgh Symphony Baroque, Called 1738 Handel, A Year in the Life, in which they're attempting to do the major outputs of uh, Handel uh, during that uh, phenomenal year, starting with Xerxes, uh, uh, weekend after next. Um, you can go and hear uh, Saul and Israel in Egypt Saturday and Sunday next week. Uh, there's also a whole series of organ concerti uh, by Handel as well. So I was asked to come in and do uh, a performance, of uh, direct and designer production of Xerxes. So a great joy to combine my two passions for Persia uh, and for Baroque opera. Um, and the result um, took place last week uh, in Canongate Kirk, and will be on again on the 26th. That's the 26th of August. <laughs> Tickets available from me or from the ESB website. Uh, and so, what I want to do here is to talk about my ideas about Xerxes um, per se, and then see how this amazing opera fits in to um, a bigger picture. Just another image to whet your appetite. Handel composed Xerxes or Cersei in the original Italian uh, between the period 26th of December and the 14th uh, of 1737 and the 14th of February um, 1738. He always uh, worked amazingly fast, of course. It was to be the last of his Italian operas. He never returned to the genre again. Uh, from here on in, he purely writes English oratorio. And it opened at the King's Theatre uh, and premiered there in the 1737 38 season. The libretto for Xerxes is largely fictional, but it does have a historical background derived from Herodotus' account of the Greco-Persian Wars, contained in his Histories, Book 7. The title role represents King Xerxes I of Persia, and the action supposedly takes place at the time of his expedition uh, against Greece in about 470 BC. And references is made in the opera to Xerxes trying to bridge the Hellespont, and also uh, in the very famous opening aria of the opera Ombra mafu under thy shade to his supposed uh, infatuation for a plane tree but for the most part the opera uh, the action of the opera centers on uh, court intrigue involving the rivalry between Xerxes and his brother Arsamenes for the love of Romilda and the rivalry of Romilda and her mischievous sister Atalanta for the love of Arsamenes a mistress, a character derived from um, Xerxes' historical wife, is betrothed to Xerxes, but is abandoned by him, and she performs a key role in uh, resolving all the complications of this rather farcical plot. The original cast contained the celebrated castrato, Gietto Maggiore, known as uh, Lo Caffarelli, uh, as Xerxes, Maria Antonia Marschini, La Lucina as Arsimenes, uh, Elizabeth Dupac, known as La Franceschina, as Romilda. So, in other words, he put together a stellar cast for this amazing production. Unfortunately, Xerxes was little appreciated by its original audiences and closed after only five performances. It was replaced instead uh, that season by repeats of heroic operas handled, composed uh, several uh, uh, years earlier, uh, such as Rinaldo. And interestingly, the opera wasn't here again until a production of Oscar Hagen, uh, which was performed at at, uh, Groningen, are in July 1924, so it disappeared from the canon entirely. But it soon became a frequently performed opera, especially in the USA, interestingly, between 1928 and 1935, where it received no fewer than eight productions. The first British revival of Xerxes actually took place at the uh, Pollard's Opera Festival in Essex in 1935. And the opera has now become very well known to us, I suppose, through the English National Operas production, uh, which opened in 1985 to celebrate the uh, tricentenary of Handel's birth, and is now is continually in the repertoire. And really, you can go into any good record store and pick up one of many recordings of uh, Xerxes nowadays. Uh, the one I would go for is in the top left corner there, Xerxes uh, by Les Arts I think is the finest recording of it. Xerxes isn't Handel's only comic opera, as it sometimes be described, but it is the finest of his operas with a comical or satirical element, and it shows great deviations from the standard plots of opera seria of the 18th century. Most of the arias, for example, are uh, remarkably short. Half of them are through composed without a decapo, that is to say they're not repeated at all. In many scenes, the music is precisely molded to the action in a manner which seems very modern. The actual music drives the plot through, which actually opera seria doesn't tend to do. It tends to step back from the plot, just allow emotions to be sung about. There is a delightful mix of symphonias, recitatives, and short arias. There is one wholly comic role, that is Elviro, uh, a servant. But all of the characters, otherwise, um, exhibit some. Um, um, degree of both seriousness and sympathy. Xerxes himself is rather an absurd figure, but never wholly foolish, but rarely gets the uh, the, um, the sympathy of the audience. Though other Handel operas contain perhaps greater music, Xerxes is one of the composer's most consistently satisfying scores, moving short-footedly between farce and tragedy, and always responding with insight to the emotions of its very human characters. And this really takes opera into a new dimension. It's a shame that that Handel never comes back to the opera genre, but you see this um, emotional engagement with characters right the way through his oratorio after this. Well, my intimate connection with Xerxes over the past year has led me to ask some fundamental questions about why did Handel choose this Persian setting and why Um, bother to turn an attention to um, a king who is, after all, perhaps not widely known in the popular imagination. Well, since Persia is my main academic love and Iran is my favourite place to visit, uh, this is a picture of Hafez's tomb in Shiraz taken very recently, I thought I would just look at how Handel went about composing Xerxes and what influences led him um, to the performance Um, All the illustrations I'll show you, and I've got quite a lot of pictures, including many of Iran, uh, were taken either by myself or by a group of students. I took 20 students to Iran uh, with me in uh, the Easter vacation, and we all had an amazing time and witnessed uh, the great hospitality for which the Iranians are justly famous and were famous um, during Handel's own period too. So what I want to do here is to explore what led Handel to write Xerxes, And what did Persia mean to Europeans, particularly the British, during the Enlightenment period? I panicked the other day, and I phoned a colleague of mine in history to ask what is meant by Enlightenment nowadays, what actually um, defines it, and I was told, well, actually, you can go from anything from the 15th century. So I've opted, however, to to look predominantly at uh, the mid-17th through to the mid-18th century. That's my definition of Enlightenment for today. Moreover, in what ways is Handel Xerxes representative of a theatrical tradition of representing Persia and the Middle East on the European stage? What I'll do is examine tragedy and opera in England and France, especially in terms of the visualisation of the Orient, in terms of set design and costumes. That's my major uh, interest. But I want to begin with trying to understand where Handel gets his inspiration from, and one of the finest things we can do, I suppose, is look at travel accounts and travelogues of European visitors going to Iran from the 17th century onwards. In 1737, just a year before Handel performed Xerxes, and no coincidence, I think, an English translation of the Dutchman Cornelius Le Brun's Travels into Muscovy, Persia, and parts of the East Indies was published in London. The chapters on Persia, which take up most of the book, are profusely illustrated with fine copper plate engravings showing richly dressed men and women wearing turbans, ornamented with feathers and jewels, and their flowered silk sashes dripping with tassels. Plants are depicted and described in meticulous botanical detail. Supplemented with odd culinary and horticultural tips, we have here a complete vision of Persian life. But on its title page... It is the noble ruins of the famous palace of Persepolis that are singled out. Le Brun spent nearly three months at Persepolis, searching after the famous antiquities, as he puts it, and sketching them. The engravings which resulted show European-looking figures in full oriental fancy dress, admiring the superb edifice of the ancient palace of Darius the Great and Xerxes, described as the most famous antiquity in the East. So famous was it that a chapter in Le Brun's travels on the ancient authors who have written upon that subject was pirated under the title Persepolis Illustrata. As this suggests, an educated British gentleman of the time derived his knowledge of ancient and modern Persia from two sources. Much informative and entertaining travel literature had been written over the 150 years prior to the premiere of Handel Xerxes and the publication of Le Brun's work. These were popular enough to be translated into multiple European languages. And then, of course, there were the classical authors, such as Herodotus, Xenophon, and Pliny, as well as the many classical antiquities entering national and private collections, such as this 4th century BC Attic vase painting, which shows Persian characters, a Greek take on what the Persians looked like uh, from some unidentified uh, Persian tragedy. And finally, of course, there was the Bible, and especially the Old Testament story of Esther, the Jewish girl from Susa who becomes the Queen of Persia, and fuelled artistic imagination from the 15th century onwards. Combined together, the travelogues, the scriptures, and the classical texts, and the images provided the educated British gentleman with a spectacle of what was conceived to be unparalleled luxury, riches, debauchery, and grand eloquence. The first British man known to have visited Persia was the merchant Anthony Jenkinson, who went there via Russia in 1561. But there followed a formidable line of merchant travellers who, in exchange for very dull things, such as strong woolen broadcloth, bristle, clothes, brushes, tin, and other functional things, came away with their holes crammed full of fragile silks, shiraz wine, rose water, cochineal, musk, Drugs, spices, dates, which are um, called in one text um, more delicately sweet than virgin honey, and much rhubarb, uh, which was used both as a delicacy for cooking, but also for medicinal purposes. They returned home with tales of the great profuseness of the Persians in their seraglios, where perfumes were consumed in abundance and the women entertained after the softest and most voluptuous manner, describing most pleasant gardens full of flowers and fruit eaten in prodigious quantities, through which ran purling streams by pipes forced up. In 1656, the German merchant Adam Oliaris published an 800 page folio text with 120 engravings of his travels into Muscovy and Persia, in which he introduced Persian literature, history, and the arts to the German-speaking public. His frank appraisal of Persian customs foreshadows the spirit of the Enlightenment and prepares the way for German Romanticism's infatuation with things like Persian poetry. His writings are full of wit and humour. Let me just give you one um, illustration of this, which actually accompanies this picture, this wood carving. He tells about the story that takes place on the June the 25th, 1637, in the hot and dry desert city of Kazvan, where the local inhabitants, men and women, are all out in the streets greeting this caravan uh, which comes into the city. And it's there because um, there are multiple camels, all of them having curtain palanquins on their backs. And the local populace, the Persians, have heard that this is uh, an emissary coming from Germany. And inside these palaquins are fair-skinned German virgins and mermaids picked up from their travels. Unfortunately, when the uh, camels arrive and the palaquins open, out stumble 14 very seasick bearded German ambassadors uh, who then vomit over the floor and the whole myth is broken. Uh, So this rather Monty Python-esque scene is typical of the kind of things that Oliarius talks about. He likes the Persians too. In one section he says, by nature the Persians are gifted with a good mind. They are sharp-witted and good teachers. Therefore, there are many excellent poets among them who write reflective poetry. In general, they have high regards for the liberal arts. They are very friendly towards each other, especially kind towards foreigners. Their speech is remarkably polite and kind. Now, in spite of his admiration for certain traits, Oliarius, of course, is a devout German Protestant who cannot help but attack Persian character traits, especially those dealing with morality and sexual behaviour. In this, he's probably led by the negative spin given to the Persians in the Greek and Latin classics. He says, for example... With regard to sexual conduct, Persian males are abnormal. They are too sexually promiscuous. Not only do they take many wives, they also frequent brothels. They are perverse as well, since the greater sin, sodomy, is rampant among them. This corporeal licentiousness is only to be expected, since their leaders, both worldly and spiritual, are depraved. This condemnation was to have a major impact on the European understanding of Persian Moors and traditions, as we'll go on to see. Although until the latter half of the 18th century, European travellers to Persia were motivated primarily by mercantile interests, and often, like Sir John Chardin here, the Huguenot jeweller, had little time for aesthetic or scholastic literature of the Persians, Their wonderfully entertaining accounts include an impressive amount of historical as well as contemporary detail, and many before Le Brun had made the detour from Shiraz, the city of roses and nightingales, a particularly beautiful spot uh, with abundant flowers and fragrant herbs where they um, refresh and perfume the natural mildness of the air, as Chardin says it, and they visited Persepolis itself. As early as 1628, Sir Thomas Herbert visited this unparalleled antiquity and expressed concern at its state of preservation. His description of the ruins, where nature and art seem to conspire towards creating of amazement and pleasure, both in sense and intellect, is established with details of costly stones of mosaic sort, as he calls them, gates of burnished gold, and roofs and casement of gold, silver, amber, and ivory. This is all fiction. The fabulous luxury and riches that 17th and 18th century travellers observed around them or invented made it all the easier for them to conjure up further images of greater past splendour when confronted with what was remained. The ruins of Persepolis led to many flights of fantasy in the travel literature and in the illustrations which accompanied them, such as this engraving by the German-born Holla from 1677 with its sweeping curved staircase and fabulous beasts, a free interpretation of the archaeological remains of Xerxes' Gate of All Nations. Or we can turn to this 1676 version by the Dutchman Stois of a resplendent palace restored with Islamic-style domes like a contemporary Safavid mosque. Chardin's own description of Persepolis, as well as his sketches, are far more academic. He surveyed the ruins from a distance and recorded the high platform on which the palace rests. He attempted to display the jumble of ruins of the public and private complexes of the ancient palace, and he recorded the huge reliefs showing kings in single combat Uh, with lions, bulls, and other fantastical beasts, tall columns, imposing gateways, this is Xerxes' Gate of All Nations, scenes of the great king in audience, and flights of steps lined with processional friezes and polished marble bright and splendid as steel mirror. Accounts of how the city was burned down by Alexander the Great uh, instigated it into, uh, in, uh, to do it by, in a stit- fit of debauchery by the celebrated courtesan Thais, and this is recalled by, uh, for, by, uh, by Handel, for example, in his oratorio, Handel's Feast, seemed all the more ple- uh, pl- feasible in a land where, I quote, heat makes lust so outrageous that they make little def- defence against it, thinking pleasure to be a delightful conqueror. So, though criticized for their luxury, sensuality, and brutality, the Persians were regarded as the most civilized people of the East. I quote Shadan there. The cultural impact Persia had on European culture from the mid-17th century to the end of the 18th century was palpable. When encountered in Europe, the rich clothes, for example, of Persian dignitaries was much admired. Even at the beginning of the 17th century, British ambassadors were returning home with Persian silks and brocades and were having themselves depicted in Persian dress, like this double portrait here uh, by Van Dyck of Sir Philip Sidney uh, and Lady Sidney, James I's ambassador to the Shah at Esfahan. At the beginning of the 18th century, very famously, Lady Mary Wortley Montague dressed herself and had herself painted in gowns she wore while the wife of the British ambassador at the Ottoman court in Istanbul. And here I need to make an important point, and that is, in the European imagination, Turkish, Persian, Persian, Turkish, it's all pretty much the same. Mohammedan dress is how things are usually called to mind. Charles II, however, was a little bit more um, circumspect he was so captivated by Persian dress that he attempted to establish, I quote, the Eastern fashion of vest, a comely dress after a Persian mode as the official court costume uh, in Restoration Court. Persian dress influenced... European modes well into the 18th century, whether in the form of fancy dress, as we see here in Madame de Pompadour's portraits of herself in the guise of a sultana, a political statement if there ever was one, she was known from this period as the La Reine Sultana, or else fashionable ladies of Parisian society uh, sitting and learning how to play the harp in full sultan dress. Or here, in more fashionable uh, 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 court gowns, this is a robe à la française, or a sackback gown of about 1760, with a very confused Oriental motif going on. Perhaps you can see it in this small insert, which is actually a Chinese pagoda put next to a Persian palm tree. It's all pretty much the same in the Enlightenment mind. The 1770s and the 1780s saw an explosion of oriental dress motifs in fashionable clothing. To go out on the streets, à la turque, or à la persenne was highly popular. And this is usually done with things like the addition of turbans, and also striped fabrics and tassels. By the end of the 18th century... Uh, simpler dress styles were coming into fashion, um, popularized by Marie Antoinette in the portrait by Elizabeth Vigie lebrun uh, in which she is dressed in a simple chemise. Um, the simple chemise was very costly since the muslin here was imported from India. But the robe à la l'anglais, that's the full-skirted gown you can see uh, at the back there, uh, was actually made from Iranian um, uh, muslin. Uh, the one in the front from about 1800 is from um, Indian muslin. We also find men adopting uh, Persian dress too, in more uh, of a relaxed state of uh, dress, however, uh, and this comes in the popular um, use of the banyan, or unfitted T-shaped garment, a uh, surviving example in the museum of costume at Bath there in brown silk, and a French gentleman wearing it. And even Pepys, of course, is uh, depicted in a banyan, which he says in his uh, diaries he rented for his portrait. Didn't actually uh, fork out on it himself, of course. There were more fitted versions of the Banyan in the early part of the 18th century, um, all examples here from the Museum of Costume in Bath, and you can see quite closely from the miniature on the side how much they resemble uh, their original um, Safavid examples, and it's in this style of dress that Handel himself decides to be depicted depicted in a portrait of about um, 1730. The Vogue for the Parasol which becomes very popular in the early part of the 18th century, also derives from Oriental themes. In the East, the parasol was always the preserve of um, dignitaries, and it re- uh, outmarked uh, somebody as being uh, of high um, status. When it was taken on by the, in the 18th century, it became predominantly a feminine fashion. But every now and then we do find uh, great and the good of um, uh, Baroque and Enlightenment Europe um, shading beneath a parasol, a French example here. And on stage um, the parasol still becomes uh, an emblem of um, here the Grand Seigneur or the Grand Turk. This is from a Moliere comedy. Interestingly some of the uh, the, the cartographers um, uh, little keys that you have in, in maps to um, Created in the 18th century frequently show um, natives from all over the world um, taking on board this oriental uh, idea. So at the top here we have um, the symbol of America uh, and you can see a sort of a a befeathered king uh, taking shade beneath a parasol. The same goes for China below. And this goes on to the stage as well. This is one of my favourite uh, illustrations. This is Mrs Bracegirdle, fantastic name, in the role of the Indian Queen, uh, Queen of the Amazons. And she has a headdress that of parrot feathers, you can see. But she is underneath the obligatory parasol. And also she has two boys, uh, little pages, holding her court train as well. So the imagination of what is actually Amazonian is being stretched there beyond credibility, I think. We find also the fascinating character of Jonas Hanway, the 18th century merchant traveller and philanthropist who braved the ridicule of London crowds by carrying a parasol in the manner of a Persian monarch after he had visited Persepolis in the 1750s. By the 18th century, European standards of domestic comfort were comparing more favourably with the opulence enjoyed in Persian houses And the busy trafficking of the merchant travellers meant that more Oriental luxuries were being supplied at home. By 1720, there were three Turkish baths functioning in London. And coffee drinking, of course, was fully established as a civilised part of London life. We also find in the coffee houses, dances in Oriental mode were being performed. And so that you could learn them at home, music books were depicting in some detail how to go about dancing à la Turk or à la Perse. But at this time, internal chaos within Persia, within the Safavid Empire, was reaching a critical pitch, impeding trade and travel. And there seems to have been an inver- inevitable consequence of despotism and unrestrained extravagance, at least in the European mind. And even the Persophile Hanway commented how happy Persia might be if a general depravity of manner did not involve her inhabitants in such, such execrable confusion. The antics of the Shah's ambassador to Louis XIV at Versailles in 1715 had not improved Persia's now declining image. Running up vast debts, he riveted and scandalised French society by his exotic appearance and his outlandish behaviour, which culminated with the elopement of the young Marquise d'Epinay, one of the first of many uh, celebrated European women to be lured away by the mystery of the Orient. By the time we reach Diderot's Grande Encyclopédie, Persepolis had come to be dismissed as ill-proportioned and badly designed, with grotesque ornaments, magnificent but in bad taste. Instead, the ruins of Palmyra satisfied the late 18th century uh, aesthetic far more. In his Persian letters, Montesquieu could play on the established image of licentious drama and frivolity as a vehicle for his satire. So if, for political reasons, Persia itself was less accessible in the 1730s than it had been, say, 50 years before, the image of Persia was still being um, frequently evoked in popular imagination. The awe with which Persian rituals of luxury and splendor had been regarded by the early merchant travelers was being replaced by fashionable, somewhat mocking enthusiasm for Oriental escapism and hedonistic pleasure. All in all, I've catalogued over 80 Persian-related plays and operas which entertained Londoners, just Londoners, between the years 1660 and 1800, ranging from historical tragedies and opera Syria to domestic comedies and opera buffa. Now, this would be the ideal time to go through that list one by one by one, but I'll save you that, and what I'll do instead is to give you some highlights of what I think leads to this fascination for Persia. We can trace um, opera back to... Cavalli, who in the the 1640s uh, in Rome um, first published uh, uh, performed uh, his version of Xerxes, Xerxes, uh, which Handel uh, used and was much indebted to. We find also from the 1660s our first set designs and costume designs of Persian-related plays, and popular culture from the theatre really pushes um, the image of Persia into the public imagination. What we have here is something kind of typical that we'll find throughout our involvement with Persia on the stage. That is a figure who is turbaned and um, um, coated in a contemporary Persian style. So all in all, looking like a contemporary Persian surrounded by architecture, which is purely neoclassical. So the two don't actually go together at all. Neither is there any attempt to make our Xerxes in this production look anything like an ancient Persian king. For the popular imagination of the 18th century, Persia, ancient Persia and contemporary Persia were one and the same thing. It's also interesting to see as well that the same kind of costuming is used in um, art of the period too. There are many um, depictions of um, the four corners of the world in popular Baroque and Enlightenment painting. Here, for example, we have one from Versailles and one from Rome, in which the Orientals are all merged together, uh, and basically the turban and the coat stands for all Mohammedans. This is something that we'll see too. The other thing which is particularly important in uh, late Baroque, Rococo, and Enlightenment painting form is the idea of tableau too. And here, for example, is the story of Esther. Esther appears before the Persian king, and basically in the mode of the kinds of costumes worn on stage. So, painting like this, historical painting like this, becomes a good source for us to understand what kind of stage costumes are being worn. And you can see the Persian king seated on his throne on high, is basically turbaned and coated. The great impact uh, really made on uh, England uh, with this Persianization first occurs, I think, in about um, 16, uh, 60, uh, 1667 with the performance of Nathaniel Lee's The Rival Queens at Drury Lane, commissioned by Charles II. It tells the story of Alexander the Great and his two Persian wives, Roxana, the willful and lusty Bactrian bride, and Statyra, the demure, sweet, chaste, and virginal bride. Clearly a lampoon on the harem of Charles II at the court of Whitehall, Roxana, of course, is none other than Barbara Palmer, the Duchess of Cleveland, while the sweet, chaste um, um, Statera is standing in for uh, Frances Stewart, the Duchess of Richmond. The play had an enormous impact on the public uh, um, perception of Persia. Nathaniel Lee was besotted by the idea of Persian wealth and opulence, and in fact, at one point, Clytus, one of Alexander the Great's guards, says, here indeed is so much purple and rich armour that its value will be incredible to those whose eyes have not been dazzled by its splendour. Putting Persia on stage is the ideal opportunity, then, to dazzle your audience. And this ensured good box office receipts. Now, in France, in a court obsessed with um, classical imagery, Louis XIV's um, personification as the Sun King himself, Persia is not forgotten. His wife and son, the young Dauphin, are here dressed for a mask costume in Persian headgear, that is, feathers and veils. That seems to stand for Persia pretty nicely. And we see the same kind of designs used by Jean Berain, the master ballet designer, um, throughout the, 17, uh, the 1670s to 1690s. Again, lots of Persian costumes being used by Berain. In the formal arts of Louis XIV's court, we see much the same. Charles Lebrun's epic canvas of Alexander the Great meeting the women of the family of Darius the Great of Persia, where, again, the tableau comes into play. Alexander the Great was something of a hero, of course, for Louis XIV. And in a wonderful commemorative fan, we have this amazing scene. Up in the far uh, uh, top, um, sort of in the clouds of the gods, sits Louis XIV in full Greek armour. He is representing Louis XIV, uh, Alexander the Great. Below him, next to him, are representations of east and west, a marriage of east and west. And the east, you can see, represented here by the woman in the tall Persian headdress, is being married to western Moors. And all the way around the fan are scenes of this intermarriage of state, probably depicting the actual um, events which happened at Susa in Alexander the Great's reign, where he forced many of his Macedonian and Greek companions to marry Persian brides. But, uh, but Louis XIV is taking on this same kind of imagery. And Persian imagery is used in many of the arts of his reign. For example, the great equestrian carousels of the 1660s and the 1670s use Persian imagery all the time. And here we see the gentleman of the court dressed in Persian garb, and behind them in a uh, viewing box, all the ladies of the court have put on their fancy dress sultana outfits. Sometimes we go even further, and here the gentlemen of the court are playing Turks, while the ladies of the court are dressed as Amazons in this grand carousel. The most famous of all the carousels, however, happened in 1660 at Versailles, um, when it was still kind of an embryo. And here we see at the centre, Louis the Fourteenth, not as a Persian at all, but this time as the Emperor of Rome. This is far more proper for the King of France. The role of the King of Persia, in all these wonderful pink and white feathers, is given to his brother, Monsieur, a man of dubious reputation, and therefore perfectly fitting to be the King of Persia, for it's Monsieur, who is labelled as with wanton excesses and venereal excesses and, of course, practiced the horrid sin of sodomy. So the ideology of Persians being um, unfit men or less than men is actually encapsulated by the casting of Monsieur as um, the king of Persia. It's a horrible throwback in the 1680s, 1690s at the French court with the dominance of um, Louis XIV's uh, second wife uh, Madame de Maintenon, a uh, deeply pious, uh, almost Jesuit woman. But she does her bit, I suppose, for um, Persianization of the French stage when she commissions Racine to write his beautiful verse tragedy, Esther, um, set, of course, at the court of Xerxes. We have a wonderful recount, uh, recollection, not only in woodblock, but also from the famous diarist of the day, Madame de Sévigné, in which she says, I cannot tell you the extreme beauty of the play. The young ladies, for this was a convent school, who play kings and great personages seem to be made on purpose to do so. The fidelity to sacred history inspires all respect. And then my favorite line, the king took pleasure in observing my genuine admiration. Turn it back on yourself. And again, this idea of um, tableau, Uh, and how we see, represent Persians on stage. And you can see the appeal of Persia, since it is so opulent. Um, This is a a theatre performance being captured uh, in a small um, German palace of about 1700. And in Italian art of the same period as well, we also get um, visual representations of how the Persians were performed on the stage. And we do get from the middle of the 18th century a host of designs representing Persian kings and Persian royalty. Um, here, for example, um, Xerxes from a uh, production um, of Cavalli's opera um, in 1720. And here, Alexander the Great, but in Persian guise. And we even get from the 1730s um, a revival of Nathaniel Lee's uh, the, Persian, the Rival Queens, in which Alexander the Great, seen there in the centre, and Statira and Parasatis at the side. And notice here that while Alexander the Great might be in some heroic form of Greek armour, the women do not abandon those things which are considered absolutely de rigueur for fashionable ladies of the early 18th century. That is to say, tight stays, or corsets, and of course, panniers, hoops. There is no effort whatsoever to make these women into real Persian figures. To show the legs, of course, would be absolutely um, an abomination anyway. So the women continue to wear full hoops, even though they're playing ancient Persian queens. And we see much the same here um, from a, uh, um, a Babylonian epic, um, Semiramis, or Semiramide, uh, from about 1760, uh, in which, again, the queen uh, wears full court hoops and tight lacing. The best of all representations, I think, of... Persians on stage, though, is this wonderful little woodblock from about 1762 showing in performance um, Arne's Ataxerxes. Thomas Arne wrote an, his, his English opera based on uh, Persian king, Ataxerxes. And here we have um, a riot going on in the pit, and you can see the rioters are mounting the stage during the performance. But if we zoom in a bit, we can see here more about the performance techniques of the mid-18th century. The male characters of the play um, uh, um, the, the king himself and his brother, very similar to the plot of Xerxes, wear Persian, that is to say, modern Safavid-style dress, coats and turbans. But the princess, the Persian princess, makes no concessions whatsoever to Persianization, and she wears very full panniers. The only um, Persian element in her dress is the feather and the light veil in her powdered wig. This princess, on, of course, to handles Xerxes, which we've talked about in some detail already but just to elaborate on the fact that it wasn't well received we have first hand account from the great diarist Fanny Burney who in 1785 recalls Xerxes it is one of the worst dramas Handel ever set to music for besides feeble writing there is a mixture of tragic comedy and buffoonery in it however the airs for Elviro a fictitious servant in this opera are of a very comic cast But otherwise, she condemns it utterly. Why? Well, it's because Handel doesn't fit Xerxes into a particular mould. When you went to the opera seria, you knew you could cry. You also knew you could leave by the last act because nothing would happen. If you went to a comedy, then you knew you could laugh. Xerxes doesn't fit in with any of the moulds. And Fanny Burney, typically of her generation, finds it difficult to perceive what's really going on. We have many representations of um, opera performance during the 18th century. And one thing becomes um, kind of apparent is that costume makes very little um, uh, change in shape and style. So in the corner here, we have a woman in full square court hoops and a high white wig. And behind her stands her page, who is holding her court train. And her lover, a Roman hero, wears, again, a panniered coat um, and a full helmet of plumes. He is in some kind of heroic mode Down below, we have um, uh, scenes from Handel, uh, sort of caricature, showing uh, Castrati, again, in heroic mode, and on her knees, or maybe not because she was so short, um, La Francescina, the great soprano of her day, uh, again, in court hoops and with the obligatory page holding her train. Now, there was a movement in theatrical design which tried to get away from this kind of image and try to bring reality onto the stage. And it starts in France in the 1770s with an actress called Mademoiselle Claron, And La Claron wanted authenticity in all things. So when she played Roxana in an opera... Uh, sorry, in a tragic version uh, in French of um, Nathaniel Lee's Rival Queens, she opted to be more authentic in her dress... If you can find the authenticity, uh, I'll buy you a drink afterwards. (laughs) Essentially, what it seems to consist of is still a tight-laced bodice with panniers, but the skirt is revealed at the front to show Persian trousers, in other words, harem pants underneath. But of course, you have to wear the obligatory white-powdered wig and full headdress of plumes as well. But this is considered, by the end of the 18th century, enlightenment reform in clothing for the stage. It does go further, however, and by the late 1770s and into the 1780s, we are finding tragic heroines in this style of dress. And although the hoops have now been abandoned in favour of Persian trousers and a Persian jacket, the white wig, of course, still has to remain. And we have a wonderful depiction of Mrs Abingdon as Roxalana uh, wearing pretty much that style of dress. So it's been a short investigation into the styles of staging, and the influences uh, that were predominant in the 18th century upon Handel and his world. Clearly, Persia satisfied so much of the 18th century imagination, not only for exploration, but also for the sense of um, otherness and a difference out there. By looking at the East, of course, 18th century, uh, 17th and 18th century, society was able, able to hold up a mirror to itself and define themselves more clearly in what they really are. If you are interested in um, more of this uh, Persianization of Athens, uh, of Athens, of uh, 18th century, um, I would recommend that you come again then to see Xerxes on the 26th of August, uh, which is down in Canongate Kirk, which is a lovely um, space to work in. And what I've done there is to try to combine uh, essentially what 18th century visualisation of Persia would have been uh, in the 1780s when we get far more of this understanding of um, Persian dress proper. hope that's been of some interest. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Wow, I think is my comment. That was terrific. Thank you, Thank you very much. We have uh, a few moments uh, for questions or comments if anybody has any. Uh, does anyone uh, want to raise any points or ask any questions in response to that? Two and a fourth around. Uh um, uh, Lloyd, as, as you
1: probably know, um, there is a, a big popular debates in the 18th century about luxury, which is the luxury of the contemporary age to do with excess and clothing, but it wasn't defined as Persian luxury, it was contemporary luxury. And it had a very big moral dimension because it seemed to uh, generate degeneracy within, within society. How does that then fit into this Perception of a luxurious other place, which is extremely degenerate, and does that mean that if you adopt these costumes for fashionable reasons, you are making? I mean, how is that seen morally, or are they two very separate? No, I don't, I don't think they. Are. I think they, they, they do merge together, and I think they merge together because of uh, the legacy which has been which uh, of of Persia, which has been left by Greek and Latin authors as well. Um, it's it's strange because um, Greek authors in particular um, deride and lampoon Persian excesses and Persian customs Um, and yet at the same time um, they thrive for them, so there were Persian goods being imported into Athens, Persian goods coming into Rome, Um, you know again it, it, it parallels I think 18th century society in many ways so I think that the 18th century gentleman could take some kind of assurance that, oh, this debate has gone on before and we're still part of it. And yes, we may think they're all weird over there and, and it's not quite right and, and the morals are, are, are wrong. But at the same time, our Greek and Latin forefathers did it and they dealt with the same thing. So I think in a way, um, it, it unites them with, with um, the people that they respected the most, interestingly enough. Thank you. Can we see this then as a simple example,
0: thinking of enlightenment as being... Um, concerned very much with uh, intellect and reason, um, finding an escape in the romantic.
1: Oh, most definitely, most definitely. I think we've, we've got here, obviously, the beginnings of what Edward Said has classified as Orientalism. Um, it's interesting to see that um, when we look, for example, at... Um, if I show you this image. When we look at something like... Um, Uh, Oliarius' title page to to his book, for example, that the East, or anything um, that which is unknown, the other is set up almost in a in a thea- as a theatrical tableau. It's it's beca- already by the beginning of the seventeenth century. It's a fantasy land. It is an escape land, most definitely, uh, and that goes with, with everything that's coming back into to to. Um, to uh, Europe as well, the, the luxury goods, the musk, the spices, um, the silks, things which just aren't available. And really that goes into an overdrive um, from the time of the, the opening decades of the 18th century, when the Arabic al um, wa-leila, or the thousand and one nights, is first of all translated into French very inaccurately, very, very inaccurately, terrible translation from the Arabic, uh, which um, really just highlights all the, 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 the sexual activities, um, the, the, the harem intrigues, um, the, the, the genies and the fantasy, and does away, actually plays down all the actual um, political manoeuvring within the al-f-leila um, the, the religious aspects, all that is, is, is um, um, swept aside. And the first translation in English, I think, comes into the 1750s. And again, England then picks up on the same kind of Orientalist theme. So I think you've you've hit exactly the the, the nail on the head and saying that the East for for a great part of the Enlightenment period is is a fantasy East, most definitely.
0: And in a way, it repeats the uh, uh, Shakespearean
1: portrayal of the scene in Antony and Cleopatra. Absolutely, absolutely. We're, we're, you know, Cleopatra. The other thing is, you know, the East is always associated with the feminine um, in the, the Western imagination and, and, and definitely is there in embryo uh, in Antony and Cleopatra where she is called Egypt. You know, she, she becomes the nation, the nation becomes her. And this continues right the way throughout the Enlightenment period. It's definitely... Can I bring up, uh, Mozart wrote, of course, the anthem um, from um, Ashton Serial. Was that in, in, in due, um, after, after Handel's work? Um, he was a huge admirer of Handel, of course. He was an enormous admirer of Handel. Um, but there was, a very, more generally anyway, there was a very popular vogue in Vienna, during the 1770s and the 1780s for all things Turkish, which is kind of surprising considering the Turkish army had been at the Viennese gates uh, only a decade before. Um, but, but before he even attempts to uh, a year before that, he, he writes an opera uh, which he never finishes called Zaid, uh, which is also called an escape from the harem kind of thing. So, so these um, Singspiels uh, in Vienna with, with Turkish settings are exceptionally popular. Uh, and the Viennese audiences know what Turks look like, after all. They've looked them in the eye, they really oh, have.
0: Awesome yeah. Thank mm. you. Any other questions? Can I encourage anybody else? Yes. Um, I, I know nothing about Handel, but I... Sorry. sorry, sorry. Um, I know nothing about Handel, but I did go to see your production of Xerxes uh-huh. um, the other Saturday, which I really enjoyed. And didn't quite know what to expect. <laughs> That's nice, thank you. Um, you said that when he was, when he, one of the reasons that it wasn't um, liked when it first came out was because um, the people who went to the opera knew when to, knew when a, when something was, when they were supposed to laugh and when they were supposed to mm. cry, and they weren't supposed to be in the same opera. Was he, was he being challenging? W- w- was that something? Was he that kind of person that wanted to challenge?
1: I think I think he was challenging, and you, you you see it throughout his you know throughout his career. Handel is also a great man of the theater, and so he he, he like Andrew Lloyd Webber of the, today, you know, he, he wants bums on seats, and so therefore he has to write certain things. And it's kind of interesting that his last foray into the opera world is with Xerxes, which is certainly the most challenging of his operas in terms of where to, where to place it. And then I think he's he's also by the time he gets to write Xerxes, he's also very tired of the Opera Syria Conventions. Um, he's written for all the great voices and has had run-ins with all the great opera singers as well. He was a temperamental man. And I think he, he, he opts at that point to, to go away from it because he realises that he alone cannot break the mould um, and, and Xerxes is a terrible flop five performances, a terrible flop and then he goes into, opera, uh, in, into oratorio which is something that he can he really makes his own anyway because there are no real conventions for oratorio and so he's doing something that is completely new so I think you see in, in 1738 um, this, this moment in a man's life where, where he is thinking I, I have to say something, I have to go somewhere else um, and, and this is what happens it's, it's a great tragedy in a way for, for, the, for the opera a great thing for choral tradition
0: So did he never see it being accepted?
1: No. no, 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 no. But then, you know, he was a very pragmatic man. He said, OK, I've, I've lost money on that one. I'll do something else. You know, going into Oratorio was very wise for Handel because, um, you know, the, the, the receipts were very good from, from Oratorios. And, of course, it, during the, 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 the opera season, you had to play um, from the period from, um, from May through to October was, was the London opera season, which meant that all opera houses had to close down during Lent. Um, and so therefore there was no money coming in but of course you can do a sacred oratorio during Lent and so the cash would keep coming in so he was was very pragmatic about it too Boyd, can I ask you a
0: question we sit here surrounded by um, uh, six right? (laughs) five of which are in straightforward dress. Mm-hmm. How about the one over there?
1: I know absolutely. He's, yeah, would you like see, to absolutely, on that? he's going full out. I, mean, yes. no, I wish I'd got a slide of it earlier on. Actually, because yeah. he is he has gone full out. Who is he? <laughs> Can anybody read who he is? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: But, but but I mean, it's it's and it's clearly as well. Uh, it's an imported um, garment as well. So, so sometimes you, you see the banyans are made, you know, back at home. But this is clearly something. This is this is proper. Fancy dress brought back and, and, and worn here, but you know it's exceptionally fashionable um, for men and women, from uh, sp- certainly from the 1720s through to the 1770s, uh, to be shown in that kind of style. And it's usually worn as a, as a sort of sort of elegant um, at-home dress. Mm-hmm. And I suppose really it, it's the it's the end product of the kind of. Van Dyck and Lelyan school of portraiture, where you see people in classical drapery. This is the kind of eighteenth-century uh, equivalent of it, I suppose. But it's a, it's a fantastic example, it really. Yes, yeah, it
0: just struck me as yeah. rather appropriate, absolutely approach, yeah. in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Because kind of so I've never known anybody really who was able to explain, <laughs> uh, you know, the genre yeah. of yeah. portrait before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: oriental dress, I imagine, would have been a lot more comfortable than um, the fashionable dress at the time. Do you think this would have influenced further dress to become more comfortable and less fussy? Um, th- there, there are surprisingly few dress reform movements in the, in the 18th, 17th and 18th century, interestingly. Um, at home, people do adopt this kind of thing. Uh, but to wear anything like this out in the streets is still considered to be uh, shocking, actually. Um, even the, the huge sweeping change that happened in fashion in the 17, um 1780s when somebody like Marie Antoinette um, started to dress, you know, in sort of shepherdess outfits and so forth, wasn't a, a complete sweep. Or, you know, wasn't a complete change whatsoever, because a court um, formal stays and, and panniers and powdered wigs were, were still absolutely required. There was, there was no question of abandoning those whatsoever. The French Revolution brought about um, changes in dress, but not so much a dress reform, because stays were still worn and so forth. And even the the empire line, um, which we all think always looks so comfortable and, and so elegant, um, had its own sort of nightmares for any female wearer as well, because corsetry changed entirely and no longer was there this sort of square um, triangular pointed stomacher at the front, but now we have things like um, um, a, a corset which clings to the waist and the hips and then has a, a large um, piece of metal inserted down the center, um, which is actually called the divorce because for the first time it separates the breasts. For the first time, interestingly, called the divorce. So, so there, there's no real, no real desire to make life more comfortable at all. That doesn't come in really until the mid 18th century um, with a, a woman called Amelia Bloomer. Uh, uh, who is an American woman and she adopted Persian harem trousers uh, called the bloomers, obviously, um, for, for women to wear for cycling and this kind of stuff. And really, the, the, the dress reform movement takes off from there, becomes big in the 1890s. But in the, in this, in the 17th and 18th century, there is no real reform for, for wanting women to be healthier and more comfortable in dress. I, I, I don't know if you've ever come across any. No. That'd be, that'd be nice. Like yeah. I'm going to say some of the religious groups may have had a bit of a perspective. Yeah. Term, these are a Absolutely. I mean, you, you do get your radical dressers, either those who dress in oriental fashions or, or those who. And during the French Revolution, for example, the les, les incroyables, you know, these these young men and women who um, cut the back of their hair in, in imitation of the locks that were cut off of the guillotine, or wear the red ribbon around their necks, that kind of but, but these are these are not reformers. Again, these are these are just fashion victims, I suppose. Really. Now, one last
0: question yes. It's, uh, right it's not really a question. It's uh, I was wondering. Is it you find it interesting, which I do, that uh, still the type of coat, the type of coat they wore in the Persian coat, the long, fitted and buttoned mm-hmm. with cloth buttons, mm-hmm. is still worn in India?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, but, but, but Persian, um, the Persian influence was enormous in, in 17th and 18th century, 16th to 18th century India. Uh, Persian was the court language in, in most of the Mughal courts, for example. Um, so it's really,
0: uh, I find interesting that it still goes on. I mean, it's mm. still Most mm, definitely, uh, for yeah, choice. Yeah, yeah absolutely. A smart absolutely. And right. like it's, it's a good look. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I,
1: of, I often think as well, I think the, um, the braiding that goes on on these banyans uh, is very similar to the kind of braiding that goes on in military uniforms in Europe in the mid-18th century. I think, I think that comes from Turkish involvement in yeah. Eastern Europe and, and filters in that way, I think, as well. Yeah. So it, it, it proves to be a very, very influential fashion, yeah. most definitely. Yeah.
0: It just shows you how today people can still be influenced by so much. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And, you know, I mean, if you only just walk up here, there's a, there's a shop selling full, you know, full of Indian clothes and Indian scarves. The, the sort of Eastern look is still very, very popular today. You know, you, 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 you say something by, by wearing um, that, kind of look, that kind of dress still. You know, you're making a statement about yourself.
0: Right. Well, it's part one. And, uh, Lloyd, thank you You're
1: very, very much for um, what right. was a fantastic,
0: the illustrated, coherent, insightful um, uh, talk. One uh, of the most brilliant lectures of this kind I've heard for a very long time. Very really, much. absolutely terrific. And it's quite clear from the reaction of the audience that uh, everybody enjoyed it as much That's as kind. I do. And thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>